0: So last week, we, we started the sermon series on the potter's wheel, and, and over the next few weeks, we're going to be thinking about that lump of clay, and we're reminded that in Jeremiah 18, God says, you are the, you are the clay, I am the potter, and the potter is able to reshape the clay when it fails the test of what it should be. Last week we found out that that truth applies to pretty much all of us. And, and Jeremiah says, or, or, or Jeremiah writes, the message from the Lord came to me. He said, Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house. I will, there, there I will give you a message. So I went down to the potter's house and saw him working at the wheel. His hands were shaping a pot out of the clay, but he saw that something was wrong with it, so he formed it into another pot. He shaped it in the way that seemed best to him. So last week we discovered that that in order for the potter to do his work in us, to shape and reshape us, he has to remove all the imperfections, the little, little tiny little stones and maybe the sticks or leaves, and then work out all the air bubbles out of the clay. And for that to happen, he applies pressure, constant pressure, to work the clay. Someone said to me in the week that if you work with clay long enough, you begin to develop calluses on your hands, so it costs the potter. Not just time, but effort and of himself. Firm pressure is needed to work the clay. And in the Jeremiah passage, the the reason that God gives to Jeremiah for, for the lump of clay needing to be reworked is that it had not become its desired shape. It wasn't like it should have been. And so the potter begins to rework the clay. But by the way, the potter doesn't just simply kind of collapse that on the, that which is on the wheel and then reshape it. He actually takes it off and starts from scratch, begins the process of removing imperfections, working out the air bubbles, and only then does he put it back on the wheel to be reshaped. And that takes time and it takes effort. But the process of reshaping, we discovered last week, is, is that we need to recognize that we have done wrong. The process of, of reshaping begins with a confession, and confession has as its presupposition the fact that we admit that we have done wrong. And then not getting stuck on admitting, but asking God to forgive us, and in that instant God forgives. 1 John 1 verse 9 reminds us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and will forgive us. But then, asking God to change us. So, confession and receiving forgiveness enables the process to start, but the change is a process. Because if we don't change, if we simply stay with Confession, forgiveness, confession, forgiveness, confession, forgiveness. That will be the pattern of our lives. We will repeat the same mistakes again and again and again. The potter needs to start with the clay almost from scratch. Change is the key. And When we ask God to work in us and change us, He deals with the imperfections taking out the little sticks and the little stones, working out the bubbles until the lump of clay, us, we're ready to go back onto the wheel to be reshaped. Now, there's some things that get in the way of reshaping and, and willingness to admit fault is an obvious one, and we spoke a little bit about that last week. The excuses, it's everybody else's fault. And just look at the defense of those caught in state capture or corruption, it's excuses, it's blame shifting, but I also want to suggest that there are some very powerful inner forces at work in our lives which make it difficult for us to change and difficult for us to allow God to reshape us, so for the next few weeks we're going to be looking at some of these because it's important to understand why and how it is possible for us to change. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at shame, fear, and hurt. These very powerful emotions, these very powerful forces within us that get in the way of us allowing God to actually change us. It's also important to note that each of these Shame, fear, and hurt are powerful on their own, but these emotions, hunting packs, they work together against us. You feel shame, so you're afraid someone will find out. You're hurt, you feel ashamed for allowing it to happen. They work, they hunt hunting packs to bring us down, and they have a very powerful effect on us. I also need to say is that whilst these may be emotional responses, they also have physical reactions in our human bodies. The kind of things that that are related to stress often come out of these emotions. But we're also told that that shame, this emotion of shame, often sits in our limbic system, our, 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 that subconscious part of our brain which either wants us to fight or fly, run or fight. And so we live on the edge, and that stress affects us. In 2009, I ended up having a serious difference of opinion with the leadership of the church that I was serving at the time. And as the frustrations escalated, I said and did some things that I later regretted. In the end, they decided not to keep me on staff at the end of, my, of that current invitation. And I, in turn, reacted by demanding a meeting of the full leadership of the church, hoping to get the exec's leadership decision overturned. It was a mess. I justified my actions, But I was fortunate enough to have a retired colleague by the name of Dick Cullingworth, who invited me for tea one day, and he just asked some very probing questions. And I began to realize that whilst there may have been reason to justify my actions, the result was that I had in fact hurt the body of Christ. And so began a few months of difficult apologies to the whole church, to the leaders individually and as a group, and then the painfully hard work of rebuilding trust because I still had another 14 months in that congregation. I felt ashamed in that I'd behaved the way I did and brought the bigger church, the body of Christ, into disrepute. And that could have led me to fighting more or just running and hiding hiding from those, particularly those i had heard, cutting people off, becoming stubborn or obtuse, or as those who know me may say, even more stubborn. Hmm. But I'm grateful that by the time I left that congregation in December 2010, God had, 2011, God had restored the relationships and built the trust to the point where the executive was functional, the leadership was, was working well, and God used us to make a difference in the lives of people that year. You see, shame is a very unpleasant, self-conscious emotion that often will cause us to behave irrationally, inconsistently, and out of character. In that incredible little Numa video we showed last week, and you can YouTube it, uh, Rob Bell Numa 10, He tells a story of how his son, once he's been busted, found out, runs and hides under the duvet for hours. You see, shame is a very powerful emotion. There are those who feel shame so keenly that they take their own lives. They just cannot see a way forward. And that's why Judas One of Jesus' disciples took his own life after Jesus was crucified. He tried to put things right. He tried to go back to the Jewish leaders and pay back the money. But he knew that nothing could fix, especially when they refused to take the money. Nothing could fix it. Because that wasn't his intention to have Jesus crucified. His idea was simply to force Jesus' hand, to get him arrested, tried, and then Jesus to call down angel armies to deal with the Romans. That was his plan. But it didn't go that way. And so he couldn't face Jesus or the other disciples, it took his life. Shame is very powerful. There are some people who will use shame as a weapon parents, a spouse, a boss, a colleague, in laws will use shame as a weapon against you. And of course, that's what the devil does. He uses, he shames us into believing that God cannot forgive us, will not forgive us, will never use us again, and that our lives, as far as God is concerned, are kind of doomed to failure. And of course, he does that from the beginning with Adam and Eve. Look at you, you're naked. You ate the apple. Sometimes shame And and the fact that some people use shame as a weapon lead to blackmail. If you don't do what I tell you, I will tell people what you've done. I will let the cat out of the bag. I'll open the cupboard, and the Smolignana skeletons will come out. And because shame is associated with negative self-evaluation, I can no longer see myself in a positive light. It becomes a big motivation that causes us to quit to stop trying, to fix relationships, to do better, to be the kind of woman or man God created us to be. It leaves us with feelings of pain, exposure, distrust, powerlessness, and worthlessness. And shame can be so debilitating that it paralyzes you. And the devil will keep accusing you, getting you to focus on your shame or the shameful action. Rather than on God's grace in Christ, the offer of a new start, the promise that the potter can take the clay and reshape it. And so we believe the lie you're not good enough, look how you've messed up, God will never use you, you're a failure, you don't measure up to God's plan for you. But, friends, this is precisely why Jesus came. Jesus came to forgive us. The cross is a constant reminder that Jesus came to forgive us, that when we ask for forgiveness, in that instant we are forgiven. But way more than that, we need to remember that crucifixion is not the end. Jesus' death was not the end. Three days later, there was a resurrection. And God took that which was dead, resurrected it, resurrected Jesus and, the, and Paul, in most of his New Testament writings, reminds us that if we put our faith in Christ, we die to our sin and are resurrected. We are made new. And so Jesus breaks the power of sin, and particularly the power of shame. That's why Jesus reminds the woman caught in adultery that he forgives her and then tells her to change, stop sinning, don't do it again, that's why King David, when he's busted, found out by God for arranging to have Bathsheba's husband put on the front line, where the fighting was fiercer, so that he would be killed, so that David could take Bathsheba as his wife, he runs, he hides, he pretends it's not true, he makes excuses, but eventually, Nathan, the priest comes to him, and says, "Is this guy that had this little lamb, and and david realizes you know he's busted and so he writes this incredible prayer in psalm 51 god have mercy upon me according to your faithful love because your love is so tender and kind wipe out my lawless acts wash away the evil things i have done make me pure from my sin I know the lawless acts I've committed. I can't forget my sin. You're the one I've really sinned against. I've done what is evil in your sight. So you were right when you sentence me. You are fair to judge me. He realizes his sin, confesses it. And God begins to rebuild his life. He's not allowed to build the temple, which was his greatest heart's desire, to build a God house. But he's allowed to lead God's people. You see, the, the, the consequences of what we do uh, or happen to us don't just disappear when we confess and are forgiven. There are things that need to be done. Money, money needs to be repaid. Uh, the guilty verdict of a court needs to be accepted. The damaged relationships need to be dealt with. But that doesn't mean that it's the end. Why? Because God is the potter. When your life doesn't end up the way you planned or you even think God wants it to be. The potter is able to remove the imperfections and recreate, reshape you, if you allow him. So how do we deal with shame? Of course, there are some people who are absolutely shameless, who have no shame, who keep on doing the things that they have been doing even when they're found out. And unfortunately, too many of our senior politicians are like that. We had a previous president who had a tell. You knew he was lying when he (coughs) started to cough (coughs) under pressure. We all knew that. There are wealthy business men and women who keep on stealing when found out. But the best, the way that we deal with shame is there are five things that we need to do. We need to recognize that we need to confess our sin to God. That's the first thing, always the first thing. And confession means that we admit that we've sinned. Acknowledge that our life is not what God intended it to be. So the first thing is confess your sin to God. That's always first. Maybe you need to confess to someone else's will. But I'll talk about that in a moment. Shame is so powerful because... Often we are the ones to blame, and so it's really hard to deal with it. It feels like it's all my fault. But friends, we also need to be recognized that, that sometimes we feel shame because of what other people have done to us. And so sometimes we need to lay blame where blame needs to be laid. It's not always our fault. There are things that happen to us that we're ashamed of, But that happened to us because of what other people have done and i'm not trying to say you know shift blame 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 the devil blame god blame your friends but put blame where blame is due because sometimes when we put blame where blame is due we realize that our shame is not correct we needn't feel ashamed because it's not our fault and we need to accept the promise of God that is true, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and will forgive us our sins. 1 John 1, verse 9. Put blame where blame is due. Ask for forgiveness. That's the second thing. Ask for forgiveness. Because God will forgive. And then make right. Oh, sorry, accept forgiveness. So often we we believe that God can forgive other people, God will forgive other people, but God can't forgive me for what I've done, because my sin is bigger than anyone else's, it's worse than anyone else's. And friends, we need to remember that with God it's not the size of the sin that matters, It's the fact that we know that He can forgive, and that on the cross He forgave us and broke the power of our sin, so accept the forgiveness that God gives you. Admit you've done wrong, put blame where it should be, accept forgiveness. The third thing is there may be some things that we need to do to put things right, to make things right. There's this incredible little story of Zacchaeus, a little tax collector who's trying to see Jesus, eventually climbs into a tree and, and Jesus sees him, calls him down, goes to his house, and, and Zacchaeus has a, an epiphany moment. He, he realizes who Jesus is, and, and he confesses his sin. And then we read these incredible things. He, he, he says to Jesus, if I've crooked anybody, if he was a tax collector, he did, if I've crooked anybody else, I will repay them four times. So he makes right, he makes restitution. And sometimes our restitution may be that we've got to go to someone and apologize our restitution may be simply that we have to um, confess to someone close to us what we've done and then the last thing is we need to do what we need to do and allow God to do what he needs to do the potter needs to reshape our lives and friends, that might mean, and often does, particularly if the shame is really deep-seated, that we spend time with a Christian friend who loves Jesus and who loves us, or a counselor or a minister, do the hard work to deal with what needs to be dealt with in our lives. That's where the, 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 most of the work of the potter kind of taking out the imperfections and getting us ready to be reshaped happens. Now, we live in a world, and I mentioned it last week, where everything is instant quick fix. We want quick fix solutions for everything. Take a pull and it's better. But unfortunately, dealing with shame particularly takes time. But it's well worth it. Allowing God to take the little stones, the leaves, the imperfections out of our lives, to work out the air bubbles in the clay, the firm pressure that's required over a period of time, make it possible for us to change and so friends as as I close I want to invite you to imagine Jesus helping you to deal with the things in your life that you were ashamed of that get in the way of you being reshaped Some of you may remember the name Charles Colson, or Chuck Colson as he was known. He was one of Richard Nixon's closest advisors, one of the first people to be sent to prison as a result of Watergate. And in prison, Chuck Colson has a moment with God, and he meets Jesus, and Jesus begins to change and transform his life, even in prison. He comes out of prison and starts an organization called Prison Fellowship International, which operates in, I think, 120 countries around the world now, and it's a program designed to help prisoners and ex-offenders to experience God's forgiveness, He's reshaping their lives and enabling them to become the woman and men God, in fact, created them to be. Who would have thought that God would use him? (laughs) So ashamed of what he had done, and yet God transforms his life and uses him to transform the lives of others. You may not believe that God can use you because of this shame that sits deep within you. Put blame where blame is due. And if it is you, ask for forgiveness. Receive that forgiveness. Deal with the mess. Make right what you can. Allow the potter to reshape your life because he can. It's the message that Jeremiah receives. Go to the potter's house, and you will receive a message. That God is the potter, you and I are the clay, and He can and will reshape us if we allow Him to. Let us pray. Lord, would you put your hand on our lives? And Lord, particularly when it comes to shame, we we don't ask you to shine a spotlight on our lives. That would just be too much. But Lord, would you just put your hand on our shoulder, reminding us that you are here this morning. May we hear you whisper into our hearts, inviting us to experience the reshaping you can bring. And Lord, all of us know in our own lives where that thing is or those things are that cause us to be ashamed. Some of them, Lord, we have done. And some of them are because of things done to us. But Lord, for those things that we know we have done, we ask for forgiveness. Would you remind us that the Scripture is true, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just, and will indeed forgive us our sins and remove them from us as far as the east is from the west. Forgive us today, we pray. Help us to receive that forgiveness deep within our spirits. May we know that we are forgiven by you. And then, Lord, give us the courage to allow you to do the work in us that will allow us to forgive ourselves. us the courage to allow you to reshape us, to deal with the imperfections in our lives. To take out the little, little stones, bits of grass, to work out the air bubbles. Lord, keep working in us so that we can be transformed and reshaped and not reoffend. Thank you for the people that you put around us, those who love you and who love us. Help us to lean on them. And then Lord, as you reshape and transform us, may we give you the glory for what you are doing. And when we see it happening in the lives of others, may we praise you and give you all the glory for their lives too. You are the putter, we are the clay. I'm gonna invite you to stand. And Lord, I just wanna speak life over these, your people. Pray that you would break the chains of shame and that you would bring life and hope To all of them, may each of us know that you on the cross broke the power of sin and its hold over us, and even that of shame. Restore us, Lord, reshape us, we pray, for you are the one who changes and transforms us.